welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you, as always, for listening. Before we begin today, I'd like to briefly apologize for the unannounced two-month-long hiatus. Although I've usually gone on hiatus during the summer in the past, this time the plan was to just finish the Savonarola series through until September, but after posting part six, I decided that it might be better to take a couple months off like I usually do. I am truly sorry for not announcing this beforehand, but in any event, we are back. Anyway, in the last episode of our series on Girolamo Savonarola, we began by recounting the closing events of the Italian War of 1494 to 1495. In brief, a coalition of Italian states known as the Holy League was formed, and together they succeeded in expelling the French army under King Charles VIII from the peninsula entirely. Much to the chagrin of Pope Alexander VII, the Republic of Florence had neglected to join the anti-French alliance, a factor which may very well have prevented the Italians from dealing Charles VIII the decisive defeat that they had hoped for. To the Pope, it seemed obvious why the Florentines had sided with the French, Savonarola. Girolamo Savonarola had been known to the Curia for some time on account of his radical preachings, which up until this point had been tolerated to a degree. However, now that his influence on the city's politics was beginning to make itself felt, Alexander VII decided that the friar had gone too far this time. At first, the Pope took what seemed to be a conciliatory approach. He wrote a letter to Savonarola inviting him, in a warm and friendly tone, to travel to Rome to engage in an honest dialogue with the church hierarchy. Savonarola, however, was aware of the true nature of the Borgia Pope, and he declined this offer. Alexander VII replied in much more harsh terms. In the autumn of 1495, he issued a papal brief banning Savonarola from preaching publicly, having an official inquiry carried out into his various writings and orations, and threatening him with automatic excommunication if he refused to comply. Ever defiant, Savonarola responded to the brief with another letter of his own, refuting the Pope's claims as slanderous lies, and refusing to obey his commands until his name was cleared of all wrongdoing. Savonarola's reply had caught the Pope on the back foot. It was at this juncture that he truly began to fully appreciate the scope of the challenge posed to him by this friar. Here was a man who could not easily be cowed into submission by the might of the papal office, nor could he be so easily outwitted. And so the Pope began to look into alternative methods of silencing the renegade friar. Specifically, the volatile state of Florentine politics at this time seemed to offer him a golden opportunity to defeat his rival. We ended the last episode with an analysis of Florence's politics after the overthrow of the Medici family in November 1494. To summarize, the Florentine body politic was divided along many fault lines, but the most contentious issue of the day was Savonarola himself. One's allegiance to either one of the city's two principal political factions was largely determined by how they felt about the friar. His followers and supporters were known as the Wailers, or in Italian, as the Piagnoni. Savonarola's constant screeds against the wealthy and powerful and his tireless advocacy of a more democratic form of government resonated deeply with the lower classes of Florence's society, from where he drew the bulk of his popular support. The friar was not without more influential supporters, however. Clergymen who agreed with his assessment of the corruption within the church hierarchy and who agreed with his prognostications for the institution's future also supported Savonarola in large numbers. 
Additionally, scholars and creatives tended to gravitate towards the friar and his impressive skills of intellect and rhetoric. Among this group was the famed Renaissance painter Sandro Botticelli, for instance. But for the most part, the more wealthy and powerful people in Florence tended to oppose Savonarola and his continued influence on the city's politics. The friar's opponents formed a rather large and heterogeneous group, broadly known as the Arabiati, or the Enraged Ones. Historians of this period are quick to point out that while the word party has been used to describe these factions, it's worth bearing in mind that the Piagnoni and the Arabiati were dissimilar to modern political parties in several respects. Firstly, there was no such thing as party membership, and as these factions possessed no mechanism capable of compelling its members to vote in a certain way. Universal suffrage, a concept integral to modern democracy, was an unthinkable notion back at that time. Instead of being driven by some kind of unifying ideology, loyalty to one's family or to one's patrons remained the driving force behind political actions. Insofar as it can be said that any of these groups did possess an ideology, these, for the most part, remained largely vague and incoherent. Another concept integral to the function of modern democracies, the right of democratic opposition, was also non-existent at this time. In speaking out against the policies of any given government, one ran the risk of incurring harsh punishments, such as fines, imprisonment, exile, or even death. Therefore, political opposition was a dangerous undertaking, and one that more often than not was confined to clandestine, sometimes violent, activities. Political opposition manifested itself in the form of assassinations. Savonarola himself had been the target of one such attempt back in May of 1495, and as a result, from that point forward, he never left the convent of San Marco without an armed escort. Two of his closest friends, Angelo Poliziano and Pico della Mirandola, had both fallen victim to poisoning, likely done on the orders of Piero de' Medici. In the course of his career, Savonarola had made many powerful enemies, a fact of which both he and the Pope were well aware. Alexander VII, having exhausted his options to lure Savonarola to Rome, now sought to liaison with Savonarola's political enemies within Florence and support their efforts to have the friar silenced once and for all. To this end, his agents made contact with the exiled Piero de' Medici, using the relatively small portion of his material wealth that he and his brother Giovanni had managed to smuggle out of the family's palazzo in Florence, Piero purchased the services of his cousin-in-law, Virginio Orsini. Orsini was a condottiero, the commander of a company of mercenaries who auctioned off his allegiance to the highest bidder. It is not known for certain exactly how large of a fighting force Piero was able to purchase with the relatively meager sum of 10,000 ducats, but in any event, his army was large enough that observers across the Italian peninsula took notice. Both Milan and Venice both pledged their support to assist Piero in his adventure. The Pope was not able to follow suit, however. Alexander VII was hesitant to continue to openly oppose Savonarola, even though he would have been well within his rights to do so as his superior in the church hierarchy. What the Pope feared more than anything else was provoking King Charles VIII of France. He was convinced that in the event of renewed hostilities between France and the Papal States, that France would almost certainly emerge victorious, and that the Pope himself may very well be deposed. He also knew that the king still held Savonarola in great esteem, and that the two were even known to have corresponded with each other. Any overt attempt to have Savonarola silenced was liable to result in exactly the provocation Charles VIII needed as an excuse to invade Italy once more. 
So when Alexander VII lent his support to Piero de' Medici's effort to reclaim what he saw as his birthright, he did so in secret. Piero's conspiracy had become public knowledge in Florence sometime around September 1495. By the second week of October, the people of Florence had been induced to panic at the prospect of the Medici's return. The Signoria placed a sizable bounty on Piero's head, declaring that anyone who killed Piero de' Medici would receive a bounty of 4,000 florins. A few days later, they made a point to specify that, in the event that Piero's executioner himself was killed, that the reward should go to his next of kin. At this time, Savonarola was still under the papal interdict which barred him from preaching publicly. Despite the fact that, in his response to the Pope, he had declared his intention to disregard these orders, Savonarola had still not been seen in public in a little over a month. Now, with the specter of a Medici restoration on the horizon, Savonarola felt that it would be irresponsible to maintain his silence. On October 11th, in open defiance of the papal interdict, Savonarola delivered a rousing and uncharacteristically bloodthirsty sermon, quote, The life of man, dear brethren, is a continual struggle upon the earth, especially for the true Christian, inasmuch as he has to fight against all hindrances to the spirit. He wars against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and is continually fighting. Thus it was with the apostles and martyrs, thus it will ever be with true Christians. God wills it for their greater glory in the life to come. Therefore marvel not if, announcing new things, we are met with so many contradictions. To me it is a marvel that they be no greater, and inasmuch as it behooves us to fight, we have now returned to the camp, to put a little order in our disarrayed forces and to equip them for a new campaign. We have two things to do. First, to fight, unceasingly unto death, and secondly, to conquer, for the cause of Christ is bound to have victory. Fear not, for in the end victory shall be ours, and if I myself were to die, this cause would still be even as the hydra of the poets, that which, when one of its heads is cut off, seven others shoot forth. End quote. In the past, Savonarola had positioned himself as a keeper of the peace. He had advocated the people of Florence to exercise the Christian virtues of mercy and forgiveness towards the Medici and their former collaborators. Now, he argued, the time, now, he argued, was the time for blood to be shed in defense of Florentine democracy. Quote, the time for mercy is past. It is time you took up your swords to cut off the head of anyone who opposes the Republic. End quote. To illustrate his example, Savonarola pointed to a story from the 5th century BCE when the people of Rome, much like the people of Florence in the modern day, expelled their tyrant from the city. When they discovered that certain people among them were conspiring to restore the king to his throne, they killed them mercilessly. So, too, he told them, must the people of Florence act in this time of great peril. Quote, Do justice, I tell thee. Cut off their heads. Even if they have families, cut off their heads. End quote. Savonarola preached two further sermons in the following days, both imitating the first in terms of their violent rhetoric. The mobilizing effects of these sermons was immediate. Both Piagnoni and Arabiati partisans were incited to take action in defense of the Republic. The ongoing hostilities against the rogue city-state of Pisa were suspended, and the Florentine army took up defensive positions around the city, joined by sizable contingents of civilian militiamen. Piero, meanwhile, was stranded in the Tuscan countryside south of Florence, cut off from his erstwhile allies Venice and Milan, and receiving nothing from the Pope but vague statements of support. Piero vacillated, hesitant to take on Florence on his own. 
He soon ran out of money with which to pay the troops, and before long his mercenary army dispersed without having fought a single battle. Having at once been abandoned by his allies and having permanently destroyed what little remained of his reputation in Florence, Piero and his handful of loyal retainers went back into exile. The failure of Piero de' Medici's conspiracy to retake Florence forced Pope Alexander VII to change his tactics yet again. Reopening communication with Savonarola, the Pope, in a brief dated October 16, 1495, wrote to him, quote, We command you, by virtue of your obedience, to cease preaching forthwith, both in public and in private, until such time as you are able to present yourself before us, end quote. Before long, however, matters of political expediency would force the Pope to rescind this order. As I mentioned briefly in the last episode, it was rumored that Charles VIII was mulling over the prospect of invading Italy once again, and there was little doubt in Rome that this time, deposing the duplicitous Pope would be at the top of his priority list. In the hopes of avoiding such an outcome, the Pope signaled a shift in his foreign policy towards a rapprochement with the French. Alexander VII soon realized that France's goodwill would be at least partially contingent on normalized relations between the Papal States and France's most significant Italian ally, Savonarola. Despite his failure to fulfill his prophesied role as the new Cyrus, Savonarola never seems to have lost faith in the French king, and so long as he had a say in the matters of the Republic's foreign policy, Florence would retain its pro-French orientation. It has even been suggested that during this period, Savonarola maintained correspondence with the French king and his advisors, encouraging them to finish God's work and to return to Italy, although there appears to be no concrete record of said correspondence. In any event, it was in the hopes of earning back the trust of King Charles VIII and forestalling future French aggression that Alexander VII softened his stance towards Savonarola somewhat. At some point early in the year 1496, the Pope reluctantly gave Savonarola permission to start preaching in public again. Crucially, however, he had only done so verbally and had not signed any official document to this effect, thereby giving him the option to revoke this approval at any time if he deemed it necessary. Also deserving of credit for the Pope's seeming change of heart was Cardinal Olivero Carafa of Naples. Cardinal Carafa was the official cardinal protector of the Dominican order, tasked with protecting the order's interests within the Vatican. Despite his lavish lifestyle, Carafa seems to have been sympathetic to Savonarola's cause, and he had previously advocated on his behalf when he had attempted to remove San Marco from the jurisdiction of Milan back in 1492. Now, Carafa came to Savonarola's defense once more, and was instrumental in petitioning the Pope to rescind his interdict. It seems that Savonarola had taken the Pope's brief of October 16, 1495, more seriously than the last one, and as a result, that year he did not preach his traditional sermons for the season of Advent. Now that he had full permission from on high to speak once again, Savonarola was poised to take full advantage of the Pope's benevolence. The season of Lent was fast approaching, and Savonarola intended to use the platform of the Lenten sermons to full effect. In majority Catholic countries, the days immediately running up to Lent were a time of great festivities known as Carnival. Traditionally, Carnival was a large public festival involving large public displays of celebration, overindulgence, and festivity, done under the rationale that the season of Lent is meant to be a time which stresses sobriety, penitence, and quiet reflection. I'm sure some listeners will be familiar with particular manifestations of this tradition, such as Mardi Gras in New Orleans, Louisiana, 
or the Carnival in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Carnival in Renaissance Florence was no less extravagant, especially under the previous Medici regime. This was the time when Lorenzo the Magnificent would put on his most spectacular public entertainments. Author Paul Strathern described the festive atmosphere which pervaded the city during these times as follows, quote, According to traditional customs, the citizens put on fancy dresses and wore masks, roaming the streets and participating in wild revelries, often involving obscene ditties and lewd antics. Bonfires would be lit around which men and women would perform Bacchanalian dances. Barriers would be erected at the entrances to different neighborhoods, and anyone wishing to pass would be subjected to rude personal questions and coerced into paying customs money. Things sometimes went too far during the rituals, stone-throwing fights between gangs of boys from rival districts, when participants would frequently suffer ugly wounds, cracked skulls, and on occasion, even death." End quote. Many in Florence had begun to feel that these carnival celebrations were spiraling out of control, no one less so than Savonarola. No doubt the origins of the festival and Roman pagan tradition rubbed the friar the wrong way. For years now, the Signoria had made efforts to rein in the worst excesses of the festivities to little avail. It seemed that no legal penalty could effectively dissuade the people of Florence from engaging in such behavior, especially the young men. Savonarola saw these young men as potential converts to his cause. He believed that he could harness the energy and youthful vigor of these youths and repurpose it to advance his own holy mission. In Catholic tradition, children between the ages of 12 and 18 are required to undergo the sacrament of confirmation in order to become a full-fledged member of the church. In preparation for this rite of passage, it was common for adolescents to attend classes where they would study the scripture and the catechism. Savonarola realized that these classes could be a powerful tool in his crusade to reform the youth of Florence. His fellow friars who taught these classes were instructed to go above and beyond their normal duties, and to attempt to convert the children to Savonarola's particular brand of Christianity. Soon enough, many of Florence's young men were won over, and were made into zealous converts to Savonarola's teachings. He had these young men, clad in white, symbolizing purity, and organized into groups, and sent out into the streets of Florence. Now, instead of engaging in the usual rambunctious activities typically associated with the carnival season, Savonarola instructed these youths to engage in public displays of virtuous behavior. Instead of setting up barricades in the streets, the youths erected simple altars and wooden crosses instead, and rather than cajoling passers-by into coughing up money to fund further debauchery, they instead humbly requested alms for the poor. All the while, they sang hymns. These were not the traditional body songs such as those that Lorenzo the Magnificent used to write. Rather, these hymns, some of which were composed by Savonarola himself, others by his friend, the poet Girolamo Beneventi. Of course, Savonarola's boys, as they had come to be known, did not merely hope to fight against vice through their virtuous example. They were instructed to take active measures against it as well. In an entry dated February 7th, 1496, diarist Luca Landucci described an incident wherein, quote, some boys took away a girl's veil holder in the street and her people made a great disturbance about it. This had happened because Father Girolamo had encouraged the boys to oppose the wearing of unsuitable ornaments by women and to reprove gamblers, so that when anyone said, Here come the boys of the friar, every gambler fled, no matter how bold he might be, and all the women went about modestly dressed. 
The boys were held in such respect that everyone avoided evil and, most of all, the abominable vice, read sodomy, end quote. One week later came Shrove Tuesday, also known as Fat Tuesday. This was the final day of Carnival, the last day before the official beginning of the Lenten season. In the past, this day would have marked the climax of the Carnival festivities, the culmination of the previous week's debauchery. Savonarola had a different kind of spectacle in mind for this year, however. Linducci describes the scene as follows, quote, February 16th, Carnival. A few days earlier, Father Girolamo had preached that the boys, instead of committing follies such as throwing stones and constructing palisades, should instead collect alms for the destitute, and, as it pleased the divine grace, such a change took place that instead of these senseless games, they began to collect alms several days beforehand, and instead of barriers in the streets, there were crucifixes on every corner. On the final day of Carnival, after Vespers, these troops of boys assembled in the four corners of Florence, each quarter having its own special banner. With them marched drummers and pipers and the mace-bearers, the boys singing praises to heaven, crying, Long live Christ Jesus and the Virgin Mary our Queen, all with olive branches in their hands, so that the good and thoughtful people were moved to tears, saying, Truly, this change is the work of God. These lads are those who will enjoy the good things that the friar has promised. And we seem to see the crowds of Jerusalem who preceded and followed Christ on Palm Sunday, saying, Blessed art thou who camest in the name of the Lord. And observe that there were said to be six thousand boys or more, all of them between six and sixteen years of age. End quote. The four groups first congregated at the Ospedale degli Innocenti, the city's primary orphanage, and together they began a procession that wound its way through the streets of Florence making stops at the city's most prominent sites, although making a point to avoid the Palazzo de' Medici, until, after about an hour or two, finally arriving at the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore. According to Landucci, quote, The church was being crowded with men and women, divided with men on one side and women on the other, and there the offering was made, with such devotion and tears of holy emotion as had never been seen before. And it is estimated there were several hundred florins. All was given it without begrudgment. It seemed as if everyone wished to make an offering to Christ and his mother. I have written these things which are true and which I have seen with my own eyes, and I felt such emotion that some of my sons were among these blessed and pure-minded boys." End quote. The following day was Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent. When Savonarola went to deliver the first of his Lenten sermons on that day, he was pleased to see the cathedral was overflowing with parishioners, among whom his boys were rather prominent. Savonarola opened his sermon by expressing his gratitude towards the young men who had done so much to bring about his idealized republic of virtue. Quote, in you, young men, I place my hope in that of the Lord. You will govern the city of Florence, for you are not prone to the evil ways of your fathers, who did not know how to rid themselves of tyrannical rulers or to appreciate God's gift of liberty to his people. End quote. The subject of the sermon quickly turned to the friars' ongoing disputes with Rome. Savonarola made sure to restate his unequivocal loyalty to the Catholic Church. Quote, I have chiefly looked to my ways, as to my faith, and I assure you, as regards my faith, my ways are wholly pure, for I have ever believed, and do still believe, all that is believed by the Holy Roman Church, and have ever submitted and do submit myself to her. I have written to Rome that if I perhaps have preached or written any heretical thing, that I am willing to make amends and retract my words in public. I am ever prepared to yield obedience to the church in Rome, 
and hereby declare that whoever does not obey her shall be damned. And, inasmuch as there are diverse opinions as to the real definition of this Catholic Church, I rely only on Christ and on the decision of the Church itself in Rome. End quote. However, Savonarola clarified that although the Church itself was infallible, this did not mean that the faithful were bound to follow every dictation of the clergy, including the Pope himself. Quote, my superiors may not give me any command contrary to my order. The Pope may not give me any command which is contradictory to the teachings of the gospel. Quote. He then proceeded to rail against the corruption which he knew to be endemic in the Vatican. Quote, oh, you high priests of Rome, you whose lust and love of luxury and pride have been the ruin of the world, violating men and women alike with your lavaciousness, turning children to sodomy and prostitution, you who spend the nights with your concubines and in the morning conduct the holy sacraments, end quote. For these people, Savonarola predicted that a grim fate lay in store. Drawing allusions to the fall of Babylon, he stated that on the day of judgment, quote, you will be clapped in irons, hacked to pieces with swords, burned up with fire, and eaten up by the flames. The light will vanish, and amidst the darkness, the sky will rain fire and brimstone, while flames and great boulders will smite the earth. All this because Rome has been polluted with an infernal mixture of scripture and all manners of vice. End quote. While these words enraptured Savonarola's followers, his enemies in attendance dutifully recorded his every word and related to Rome. The fact that Savonarola was openly flouting the authority of the senior clergy was cause enough for scandal, but his reference to the priest who sleeps with the concubine and conducts mass in the morning was instantly recognized to be an allusion to the behavior of Pope Alexander VII. Almost daily, reports were reaching Rome telling of Savonarola's army of children and that he was plotting to use to overthrow the Florentine government. This, more than the thinly-veiled attacks on his character, enraged the Pope to no end. Apparently, he complained about this constantly to the members of his inner circle. But, as upset as he may have been, Alexander VII was ever cognizant of the fact that Savonarola still counted Charles VIII as a close friend and ally, and that any attempt to oppose the friar outright would surely incur the king's wrath. Still, Alexander VII sought other ways to bring the insolent preacher to heel. To this end, he appointed a commission consisting of a number of cardinals, bishops, and other clergymen to investigate Savonarola's public statements for any evidence of heresy. Meanwhile, as Savonarola continued to deliver his Lenten sermons, each more fiery than the last, the Signoria was growing concerned that his words were antagonizing both the Arabiati and the Pope, and were fearful of the ramifications that this might have. At some point in mid-April, Piero Caponi was dispatched to speak with Savonarola, to warn him of the dangers that he was incurring for himself and for the common good of the city. For whatever reason, this warning seems to have gotten through to Savonarola, at least to some extent because while he continued to speak of his violent and apocalyptic visions of Italy's future, he began to claim that he could also foresee his own demise. Quote, Do you wish to know how this will all end for me? I can tell you that it will end with my death when I shall be cut to pieces. End quote. On a day-to-day -day basis, it would have seemed to many average Florentines that Savonarola's heralding of the end of days may have some basis in reality. Although the people of Florence may have believed that the worst of the peril had passed with the withdrawal of the French from the city, the year 1496 only seemed to have brought with it fresh woes. To begin with, the ongoing war against Pisa continued to produce no favorable results for Florence. The Pisans had been able to put up surprisingly stiff resistance to Florentine attempts to recapture this all-important city. 
Landucci's diary at this time is filled with daily reports of new Florentine casualties from the front lines. The cost of the mercenary armies that had been hired to conduct this war, compounded with the loss of trade revenue that coming in from Pisa, placed significant strains on the city's economy, pushing it ever closer to the brink of bankruptcy. Just as worrying was an exceptionally long streak of inclement weather, which threatened the viability of the last year's harvest. Landucci reported that the area had been afflicted with near-constant rainstorms for the greater part of the previous year. Fears of famine had motivated peasants to migrate from the countryside and into the city in droves. Thanks to relief efforts organized by Savonarola and the monks of San Marco, the use of the city's reserves ensured that no one died of starvation during this time, but the massive influx of peasants into the city had presented Florence with another problem, an outbreak of the bubonic plague or at least many believed it to be the bubonic plague. Landucci described the symptoms as being quote-unquote French boils, for which there was no known cure. Whether the sickness which afflicted the city at this time was actually the bubonic plague, or whether it was syphilis or smallpox or something else of that nature, has not been conclusively determined. In any event, the Signoria, whether motivated by a desire to contain the disease or to forestall any adverse consequences of Savonarola's recent preachings, announced a two-month ban on public gatherings, including masses. Savonarola reacted merely by relocating to the town of Prato, some 30 miles to the northwest, and preaching his sermons there. This self-imposed exile did not last for very long, only eight days as a matter of fact. By April 25th, Savonarola returned to Florence and had begun preaching in public once more. Meanwhile, the commission appointed by Alexander VII to investigate Savonarola's preachings and writings was running into no small degree of trouble uncovering any evidence of heresy. Nearly all of his assertions they had found had been backed solidly by the words of scripture. The Pope shifted his tactics once again. If neither coercion nor legal trickery would work, perhaps bribery would. Alexander VII sent out feelers to Savonarola to inform him that if he eased up on his hostility towards Rome, the Pope would make him a cardinal. Savonarola addressed his feelings on this matter in a sermon dated August 20th, 1496. Quote, I have no wish to receive a cardinal's crimson hat. If I had coveted such a thing, would I be standing before you all in this threadbare habit? On the contrary, the only gift that I seek is the one that God gives to all of his saints, death. A red hat, a crimson hat of blood, this is all I want. End quote. As the year 1496 dragged on, Florence was beset by further misfortunes. The ongoing torrential rains had indeed caused widespread crop failures, and the price of grain more than tripled. Cases of the quote unquote French boils continued to proliferate throughout the city, and the War of Pisa continued to drag on. The primary reason why the Pisans had been able to hold out so long against their larger and nominally more powerful neighbor was the fact that they were enjoying the clandestine support of both Milan and Venice, both of which wished to see the city separated from the Florentine Republic so as to punish them for siding with the French. To make matters worse, news reached Florence that the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian I, was preparing to intervene on the side of Pisa. Although he had been entreated to do so by the Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, the Emperor had his own reasons for intervening, mainly because he believed that he could undermine France in this way. With the situation looking ever more dire by the day, Piero Caponi took personal charge of Florentine troops in the field. On September 25th, Caponi led Florentine troops in an assault on the peace-held castle town of Soyana. At some point during the battle, Caponi was shot in the head by an arquebus and died. 
all of Florence mourned his loss. Although his reputation had waned somewhat in recent days owing to his opposition to Savonarola's Republican vision, the people of Florence still very much remembered the leading role that he played in ousting the Medici from the city and in the tense negotiations with King Charles VIII that followed. Capone's body was taken back to Florence, where he received a state funeral two days later. As Florence's military situation grew more increasingly dire by the day, what of their greatest ally, the King of France? About a month after the death of Piero Capone, some good news arrived in Florence for a change. A French fleet had arrived at the Florentine seaport of Livorno and compelled the forces of Emperor Maximilian I, who were besieging the city, to retreat in disarray. Many in Florence heralded this news as presaging a second French invasion of Italy, in the event of which the French would surely assist the Florentines in their efforts to recapture Pisa. However, a more saddening and disappointing piece of news arrived a month later. In September, Anne of Brittany, the wife of Charles VIII, had given birth to a son who was also named Charles. The boy died only a month and a half after his birth. This development seems to have affected the king so deeply that, in his grief, he abandoned all of his plans to invade Italy once again. Savonarola interpreted this unfortunate turn of events as proof that God would punish King Charles VIII if he did not fulfill the mission given to him by God to become the scourge of Italy. But while this prediction of Savonarola's had seemingly proven true, at this time some began to question his gift of prophecy. Specifically, they wondered what had happened with the prophecy of the Virgin Mary as outlined in his Compendium of Revelations, the prediction that Florence would grow more glorious, powerful, and wealthy than it had ever been. To most Florentines, given their recent string of misfortunes, this certainly did not seem to be the case. Savonarola addressed such criticisms in a sermon he delivered on October 28th. Florence, he explained, had not yet been deemed worthy of such fortune not until the city had been completely purified of all evil, evil which Savonarola saw all around him. Until such time, God's city on earth, the new Jerusalem, would continue to suffer. And it is there that I will end the narrative for the time being. With Florence beset on all sides by adversaries and, the, and a new French intervention nowhere in sight, what would become of the new Jerusalem? Would Savonarola prove capable of leading the city to the power and glory that he had prophesied for it, or would his many and powerful, or would his powerful and numerous enemies prevail? You will have to tune in again in two weeks to find out what happens next. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can reach me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you've enjoyed the series thus far, I strongly encourage you to check out the show's eBay Marketplace and Patreon page for ways to support the show financially. Additionally, I'd encourage you to write a review for the show on whichever podcast platform you happen to use. In any event, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.